Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and one of today's co-hosts. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome someone I've known for a number of years, Andrew Bellinger, Chief Scientific and Medical Officer at Verve Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Great to be here, Rahul. So, Andrew, we'd love to learn about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Well, I think the problems that always interested me were actually drug development, but it wasn't always clear to me that that was true. So when I started out in college and graduate school, I was interested in in the methods, biophysics, mathematics, quantitative modeling, but I wanted to apply them to understand the biology and to understand how to treat disease. It was only later though that I realized that if I really wanted to do that, I had to learn how to develop medicines. And so that led me back to medical school. That led me to a PhD in molecular biology, essentially biochemistry, biophysics, and then into clinical training, which you know I did in New York and California, and then back here to Boston to train in cardiovascular medicine. I think the experience of seeing patients was impactful in, in lots of ways. I still do it. I still have a clinic here in Boston, but it taught me that patients really struggle with their diseases and struggle with their medicines too, that the chronic care model doesn't work for a lot of patients, that that's, that's a hard burden to try to manage every day their disease. That's really what motivated me to move to biotech and focus on developing medicines that could improve the patient experience and make it easier for them to manage their disease and maybe even to treat it or prevent it. That transition was originally to a company that I founded called Lindra, which was developing oral long-acting medicines. So for example, oral long-acting form of an antipsychotic for patients with schizophrenia. I founded the company and then was CSO for a number of years before deciding to make the transition to Verve. Verve is, is in some ways an extension of that concept. So, you know, as patients struggle with taking their medicine, oral long-acting therapies could be one solution for that. But a gene editing therapy that could provide a lifetime benefit that would obviate the need for some of the chronic care model that patients currently take is kind of an ultimate destination in, in some ways. You know, I made the transition to biotech by founding a company, which is not a typical path probably, but in my case, it was uh, an opportunity coming out of MIT and Harvard, working with Bob Langer and Amy Schulman to build a company and from there to grow it and to learn drug development along the way. So you know, it's a path into biotech that I think I feel very fortunate to have had and, you know, an opportunity that I was able to take advantage of. So that's really what led me into Verve and into biotech to make that transition. Tell me a little bit about the challenges and the opportunities in the gene editing landscape. Gene editing is an evolution in a couple of ways. You know, for a lot of the targets that have been identified in drug development, there are other modalities that you can tackle those targets. So for example, for our lead program at Verve, Verve 101, targeting a protein called PCSK9. So for this target protein, there have been monoclonal antibodies developed. There have been siRNAs developed. 
but these all suffer from a continuation of that chronic care model. So what we set out to do was to develop a one-time therapy, a gene editing therapy that would edit and permanently turn off the production of PCSK9 in your liver. And that would provide a therapeutic benefit for you for the rest of your life in reducing your risk of cardiovascular disease. So the way to think about gene editing in some sense is less about the technology and more about what are you trying to do with it? That's really the idea and the vision behind Verve was to be less of a platform company, less of a gene editing for gene editing sake, and more of a company that's developing gene editing medicines for a very particular purpose, which is to tackle the leading cause of death in the world, heart disease. We know that our targets are extremely well validated biologically by human genetics and pharmacologically by some of these other modalities. So if we can permanently turn off these disease-causing genes in your liver, we're very confident that that will lead to a therapeutic benefit for patients. And that's really the vision behind the company. It really came out of that history of exploration in human genetics. Great. Thanks, Andrew. And where's the team now from a development perspective? I know you've had a very busy last 12 months, so we'd love to hear where you are now. We're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're about uh, close to 100 people. We're a late preclinical stage company working through our IND enabling studies for our lead program, Verve 101. We publicly guided that we'll be targeting to submit an IND and, and initiate clinical trials next year in 2022 for the lead program, Verve 101. And, you know, this will be one of the first in vivo gene editing programs to go into patients. As you may have seen, Intellia recently announced some data back in June on their TTR program. So this is a, the first uh, gene editing program to go into patients using a first-generation Cas9 gene editing approach against the TTR protein. What we're doing at Verve is we're using a second-generation base editing technology. So this is a newer approach that uses an inactivated form of Cas9 fused to a deaminase enzyme that allows you to make single base pair changes in the DNA at one specific site to turn off a gene, in, in our case, PCSK9, by making a one base pair change from A to G in the DNA in your liver. We are able to accomplish that by delivering this enzyme to the liver using lipid nanoparticles. So this drug product, a lipid nanoparticle containing mRNA for an adenine base editor and a guide RNA that targets it to the PCSK9 gene, looks an awful lot like the COVID vaccine, it turns out which is, as you may know, a lipid nanoparticle containing a mRNA for the spike protein. So we've been able to take that approach and apply it to liver delivery of gene editing therapies to target these genes. So, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were about 20 people. Now, uh, about 18 months later, we're about 100 people here working towards bringing these therapies to patients next year. Very exciting progress. And it seems like you've had a, a really busy couple of years so you were a co-founder at Lindra, which has now raised you know, north of $150 million in venture capital. And now you helped to take Verb public this last year. Congratulations on that milestone. Thank you. It has been a busy year. Verb's been growing very quickly during the pandemic. And I think it's a testament to the tremendous data that the team's been generating and to the enthusiasm of a lot of investors in the concept that gene editing actually can be applied to more common diseases like cardiovascular disease. 
to that point, curious, what were some of the lessons learned from you know being involved in Lindra in the very early days, helping to raise a bunch of capital that you then brought along to Verb to help accelerate or perhaps reshape how folks were thinking about the CSO CMO role? Answer that in two ways. One is the kind of more technical way, which is I, I sometimes pinch myself when I think about Verb because it's such a perfect fit for my background. I'm a board certified practicing cardiologist. My postdoctoral training was in drug delivery. My specialty at this point is translational medicine and early clinical development. And, you know, Verve brings together all of those aspects from a early drug development standpoint. From a more personal standpoint, I mean, I think that the answer is that you can only learn how to do this job by doing this job. And, you know, Lindra was a chance to build a company from the ground up and learn how to build a team and how to execute complex R&D programs for a new drug product. And you learn by doing and you learn by making mistakes. And I, I think, you know, sometimes you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. You know, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had along the way to learn and to grow into the role. And I think the last couple of years at Verve has been really a tremendous, exciting opportunity to work with terrific founders, you know, say Catherason, the CEO, Bert Edelman, the chair of the board, Andrew Ash, uh, chief operating officer, and really build a company that is incredibly focused on developing products. And I think, you know, that's been a theme in how we structure the company. It's a theme in how we hire. It's a theme in, in how we, you know, focus the priorities of the company during a pandemic, continuing to execute at the tempo that we've executed has required a lot of focus and a lot of dedication from the team to kind of advancing the products and the mission. Andrew, on that point, in terms of progressing the team and the mission, you know, cardiovascular spaces is a complex one. How did you go about, and along with the rest of the team, how did you go about deciding what was the first indication to pursue, or if there's a, a framework that you typically like to use in terms of indication selection? The company was founded with the mission of tackling atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The human genetics that say Catherason and Kieran Musinero, two of the founders, had, had worked on for the last 15 years guided us towards a set of targets where we knew that there are mutations. There are people walking around who carry mutations that are protective against heart disease. So what we were looking for were target genes like that, where we knew that if you had one copy missing of the gene, you would be protected against heart disease, where we also knew that if you had two copies missing of the gene, so you had none of the protein, you were safe. You know, there were no obvious adverse events from that. And where the protein was expressed predominantly in the liver, because the liver is the organ that's most easily accessed by, you know, lipid nanoparticles. And so it's, you know, a fortunate situation where we can tackle cardiovascular disease by editing a protein in the liver. So when we kind of put together that mix of priorities, we wanted well-validated human genetics. We wanted targets that were relevant to risk of, of MI, and, and necessarily that essentially means lipid targets. And we wanted targets where there was some degree of human pharmacology data to help us understand the pharmacodynamics. That narrowed us down to a list of about eight targets. From there, we further prioritized down to PCSK9 as our lead program. You know, it has a, a really nice potential for a clinical development program that expands from an initial indication, which is patients who have a genetic 
predisposition to heart attack called familial hypercholesterolemia. And that turns out to be a very common disorder, about 1.3 million people in the United States, 31 million people around the world. But from there, we can expand because the same therapy of lowering your LDL cholesterol through targeting the PCSK9 gene will reduce your risk of heart attack if you have you know, run-of-the-mill garden variety atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And so that patient population is now about 5% of the world. We're talking about tens of millions of patients. So, you know, the target is very validated. The human genetics is strong. And, you know, we were able to demonstrate preclinically in non-human primates that we could, with a single IV infusion, edit essentially nearly every liver cell and change one base pair at only one spot in the genome and turn off this gene. You know, that gave us a lot of confidence. That was the right first program to take the patients. I want to go back to your growth trajectory. The thing we hear a lot on this podcast is how challenging hiring is, especially in our current climate. What lessons did you learn from growing Verve so quickly? It's funny that we talk about growing Verve so quickly because along the way, we spent a lot of time resisting the urge to grow faster. You know, I think that there was a lot of thoughtful decision making about not growing too quickly, too fast. As you may know, in the gene editing space, companies have grown fairly quickly. I think what we prioritized was staying very product focused. And that meant having a very flat organization, a very cross-functional organization. And I think that that was attractive to a lot of applicants, that it was a very product focused and flat organization. I think they recognized that come to work at Verve and everybody knows exactly what they're working on and why they're working on it and how it fits into the broader mission of developing products for to reduce the leading cause of death in the world, heart attack. I think that mission, that focus on product, the flat, relatively small organization, all were really critical drivers of the ability to hire and hire well. I'd also say that, you know, I think Sake and I have taken a pretty hands-on role in recruiting and, and hiring. You know, Sake has interviewed every single applicant. Every single person we've hired before we made an offer, I've essentially done the same on the R&D side. And I think it sends a message to the team that hiring well is the single most important thing that we can do in building the company. Andrew, we've heard a lot about the talent crisis in the life sciences sector currently, given the increasing diversification of treatment modalities coupled with the influx of new capital into the space. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, what can we do better as a sector to solve the talent crisis over the next decade? Well, I think recognizing with a lot of these new modalities that sometimes finding somebody with 20 years of experience in drug development is not always the right answer. And sometimes it's for a lot of roles, you can find people who are recent graduates, may not have as much traditional background, you know, experience in, in drug development you know, bringing them in in science roles where they can learn the science and then grow into the more developmental roles. Well, you know this, when you look around, you know, a lot of organizations, their regulatory team comes out of their analytical team or out of their discovery organization uh, early in their career. So I think that's part of the answer is recognizing you're, you're going to be taking people earlier in their career in some cases, and then sprinkling in experience in critical roles. Thanks, Andrew, for sharing your perspective. Cardiovascular trials tend to have long-term follow-up requirements. 
And this last 15, 16 months or so have been quite challenging in terms of ability to execute preclinical and clinical programs. I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the changes that you have observed since the start of the pandemic that you hope last long after we're on the other side of the pandemic? Maybe to clarify a few points, cardiovascular trials often are large in terms of the number of patients enrolled. And some of them are relatively long-term and lasting several years of, you know, particularly cardiovascular outcomes trials. For us in our drug development program, we don't anticipate needing cardiovascular outcomes trials for approval for the majority of our products in as much as LDL cholesterol is, is a very robust endpoint for regulatory approval around the world. So, you know, we think that that's likely to be the approval endpoint. Having said that, because we are a gene editing medicine, we do anticipate a long-term follow-up requirement. And that's, you know, something that the FDA has provided guidance on that expects 15 years of follow-up for gene editing therapies. And that does create some interesting challenges for us because we're developing in a relatively common disease with relatively large clinical trials and anticipating 15 years of follow-up. And so you do have to start thinking about how you can do that efficiently. And, you know, decentralization, which has been, as you know, a major theme of clinical development during COVID is something that we think is going to be really important in those long-term follow-ups to be able to make it feasible for patients to participate for 15 years in a clinical trial. Remember too, it's where they are only dosed with our product once at the very beginning. So maintaining that engagement with patients is going to be a challenge to say to them, you know, we dosed you at time zero and, you know, we want you to still be coming back to office visits or check-in calls 14 years later, 15 years later. It's really critical to us to build that, that rapport and build an efficient system for minimizing the burden on patients so that they stay engaged. And I imagine real-world evidence is going to be part of the data collection strategy here. How are you approaching that now? And what do you hope to see in terms of just the overall real-world evidence space over the next one to two decades? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think one that's evolving quickly. I mean, for us, there's a few different avenues. One is using those 15-year follow-ups that are required for safety to help support data about durability and efficacy. And that's going to be open label cohort follow-ups. And so we'll have to couple that data, that durability and efficacy data, showing that we can lower your LDL cholesterol and it stays down for 15 years. Couple that data with the real world evidence on how that impacts cardiovascular events, how that impacts cost of care, how that impacts what other therapies patients need to be on, whether they need stents, whether they need hospitalizations for heart failure. So we'll be collecting that data and then comparing it against other population level data to try to understand how that, how we're driving value for patients and for the healthcare system. And, you know, hopefully for the population as a whole. To wrap up question that we've been asking folks over the last couple of episodes is, you know, particularly given the diversity of your experiences from medicine to co-founding a biotech to now being CSO and CMO at a publicly traded biotech. As you, and I'm sure you don't have too much of an opportunity to do this regularly, but if you were to look back and think about, you know, what is one piece of advice that you would provide your younger self or something that you wish you had known when you were starting out your career, what, what comes to mind? 
you know, my story doesn't exactly speak to patience, but I think patience is actually a really important concept. You can't plan it all. And you do have to have a certain amount of patience and waiting for the opportunities when they come that you can take advantage of. The other is, I think, recognizing the importance of relationships. So I've had a number of mentors who've been incredibly influential in my transition into biotech. You know, mentors and friends, I should say, who have a mix of giving opportunities, opening doors, encouragement, feedback that, you know, made me a better leader and a better biotech exec. And so nurturing those relationships and nurturing those opportunities to learn from people. I'd call out, you know, a few, um, Amy Schulman, who was my co-founder at Lindra. You know, I can't even begin to kind of articulate all the things she taught me. You know, a friendship from the hospital. So Anthony Filipakis, who is a partner at Google Ventures, was my co-fellow at the Brigham. And he and I would often be sitting in the hospital late at night, writing up notes in the fellow's call room, you know, talking about, you know, our interest in biotech and those relationships are critical. You know, Anthony was one of the drivers behind Verve and definitely the reason that I got involved. So those friendships can come back in unexpected ways. Well, Andrew, many thanks for joining us today, for sharing your story and the exciting and important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Verve. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.